Lord Jesus, I thank you that from the very beginning of time, you knew that you would go to the cross for our sins. And I thank you that you have become the perfect Passover lamb for us. I ask, Father God, that you would remind us daily of what that means. Holy Spirit, teach us daily the depths and width and the height of what you have done for those who believe. And now, Father God, I ask that you would teach us from your word, that you would give us hope beyond comparison, and that you would remind us that we are only pilgrims here, passing through, and that our citizenship is in your kingdom. Thank you, Father. In Christ's name, amen. Communion is a reminder. It reminds us of the glorious work of Christ. It reminds us that Christ brings us to a place of perfect relationship with God. This, this is where, where Peter takes us in this passage. It's, it's so neat that this passage is for today when we're doing communion. Let's look at this morning's passage. I'll read this for you. It's from 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 6. For this is contained in Scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him shall not be disappointed. This precious value then is for you who believe, but for those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone. And a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. For they stumble because they are disobedient to the word, and to this doom they are also appointed. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Fabulous passage. In verse 6 for this is contained in, in Scripture. That, that phrase connects Peter's thoughts in this passage we're looking at today to what he has, has given us before in 1 Peter 2, 4 and 5. And coming to him as to living stones rejected by men, but choice and precious in the sight of God. You also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. When Peter says this is contained in Scripture, he's not directly quoting Scripture, but referring to the truths of Scripture. And if you, if you do the research and you look at those things that he says from Scripture, they aren't exact quotes. He's referring to truths. And specifically, these truths are from the Old Testament. 
The first is a reference from Isaiah 28, 16. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him shall not be disappointed. And from the context of 1 Peter chapter 2, especially 4 through 5 and the passage we're in today, we know that the stone in Peter's mind is Christ. Peter called Jesus a living stone in verse 4, which means he's not a man-made stone idol. This was an important part at that time in history because idolatry was everywhere. Jesus is the living God, the creator of the universe. The term Zion, that term can mean the city of Jerusalem. It can mean a specific mountain. It can, it can mean Israel as a whole. And Zion is, is also used figuratively in Scripture of the New Covenant. We know from Galatians 4, 24 and 25 that Mount Sinai represents the Old Covenant. We also know from Hebrews 12, 18 through 24 that Mount Sinai, um, that Mount Zion represents the New Covenant. So you have two mountains, one representing the Old Covenant and one representing the New Covenant. In verse 6, Peter states two things about Christ. They're very important aspects of Christ. He is the cornerstone, and he also says he is a precious cornerstone, a choice stone. So he's describing our Lord and Savior. A choice stone figuratively describes Jesus as God's chosen one, the Messiah, the Savior. So in that that phrase, Peter is making it very clear to those who read this letter that he is declaring Jesus to be the Messiah. Most of the readers of Peter's letter would also have understood the, the construction methods of the time, the things that were used, especially for building a structure like the temple. And what went on was workmen would prepare the stones in advance in a different location. There wasn't any construction noise going on where the temple was actually being built. It was very, very controlled. The finished stones were brought to the construction site, and craftsmen would very carefully and skillfully place each stone against each stone in place. And only minor adjustments would need to be made to the large puzzle of the stones of the temple. So Peter also then extends that by saying that Jesus is the precious cornerstone. Precious comes from a Greek term that means unequaled in value, irreplaceable. The cornerstone in their construction techniques of a building like the temple, was the most important stone. There wasn't anything more important for a building of that type than the cornerstone. The cornerstone at that time in history was extremely different than the cornerstones that we use today. Today, a cornerstone is is symbolic, and it's it's very often just a facade of, of carved engraved stone and it's just kind of cemented into everything else that's already there it it um it declares uh just gives information about the dedication of the building the cornerstone when peter wrote this and and it literally it means chief cornerstone this was the most important part of any building because every angle 
Every surface, everything that came after the cornerstone was based on the angles and the shape and the size of that cornerstone. The extreme attention to detail was needed because the cornerstone established all of the geometry of the rest of the building. The cornerstone was very carefully set in place. It was very, very meticulously set in place. (coughs) And everything that followed was put into place in relationship to that one stone. They didn't have lasers and all that kind of stuff. They did a lot of this with strings and plumb bobs. Plumb your bob. Okay, so everything then became critical to some kind of standard. That standard was the cornerstone. So the cornerstone had to be as close to absolute perfection as possible. Peter makes the perfect stone an analogy of the perfect security in Christ. Believer, believing in the cornerstone also, he says, brings no disappointment. The hope of the believer will not be dashed. The analogy would go like this. If the cornerstone is perfect and you follow the, the angles and everything, the geometry of the cornerstone, the building will stay up. He is, Jesus is the perfect cornerstone. Every aspect then of the church, that's you and I, extends from him. The entire structure of the church is designed and derives its purpose from Jesus Christ. The church is perfectly fit together because its foundation is Christ. We know, we've talked about it many times, the church is made up of every believer. And every believer is secure in Christ. In the church, there is perfect abiding love also for Jesus because he is the cornerstone. We gather every Sunday. And and one of the principal reasons we do is to celebrate and to express our love and our worship for the cornerstone, for Jesus. Only believers exhibit this kind of love. Unbelievers reject Christ. They reject the perfect cornerstone. And Christ then becomes, as Peter tells us in this passage, a stone of stumbling to them. Verse 8 clearly teaches that those who reject Christ stumble and fall under divine judgment. Unbelievers suffer doom because of their rejection of God and disobedience to his word. Paul told the Corinthians 16.22, 1 Corinthians, If anyone does not love the Lord, let him be accursed. Peter contrasts the eternal destruction of unbelievers with the glorious future of believers by identifying them in four ways in verse 9. There's four identifiers, and if you're a believer, this is who you are, and this is where you should derive your value from. First, believers are a chosen race, chosen by God to be his people. The chosen race consists of people of every color, culture, every... Everything that identifies anyone. Our race is being chosen by God. Believers are not white, black, yellow, red, or brown. They are chosen out of all people groups, one by one. Each believer is chosen by God and given mercy. God has given each believer grace and mercy. 
The believer is made part of the chosen race because of God's love. That message of race should be spread in a lot of the communities in our country. The second one. Believers are identified as a royal priesthood. Every person who has believed in Jesus as Messiah and trusts in him alone for salvation is given the position of royal priest or priestess. The idea of a royal priesthood is found in Exodus 19.6. You shall be to me a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. I wonder sometimes if we ever think of ourselves as a priest or priestess. Israel was identified that way, but the Israelites gave up their privilege to the royal priesthood because they rejected the Messiah. They rejected Jesus. There's actually two ideas that come together, two components that make up the idea of royal priesthood. First, priests have access to the king. Royal priest. So a royal priest has access to the king. And they can come into his presence with spiritual sacrifices anytime. You have total access to God. And the second component is priests rule with the king. We don't think of ourselves in those terms, but that's what's behind the meaning of royal priesthood. The third way believers are identified is as a holy nation. Nation translates the Greek ethnos, which means people, as an ethnic group. And holy means separate, to, to set apart. And believers then are separated by God from other humans for a relationship with him. And joyful service flows from that relationship. That's where our joy and our our activity as believers comes from. The fourth way believers are identified is as a people for God's own possession. God promised the Israelites in Exodus 19.5, Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. Possession in this passage, in 1 Peter, means to purchase, to acquire for a price. Every believer is God's possession because he purchased them with the ultimate price, the life of his only son. You have been purchased. That means you belong to God. Peter says also in verse 9, who has called you out of darkness... Into his marvelous light. The unsaved world is hidden in two kinds of darkness intellectual and moral. Intellectual darkness is not being able to find or know the truth, moral darkness is not being able to do what is right in God's eyes, in morality. Unbelievers live in darkness, and they love the darkness. And all of us were there at one point. We lived in that kind of darkness. Jesus said this, John three nineteen and 20. And this is the judgment that the light is come into the world, and men loved the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. 
For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. Believers are called out of darkness, out of a dark kingdom, of the, the dark kingdom of Satan, and placed into the kingdom of light. Paul wrote of this to the Colossians. It's one of my favorite verses. Colossians 1.13, For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. Something takes place. You were in darkness. God acts and you were removed from that kingdom of darkness and brought into a kingdom of light. That is amazing. When believers receive Christ's light, light, he illuminates their minds through the work of the Holy Spirit. You you begin to see things differently and, and are instructed in things differently so you can discern the truth. And God also changes the believer's souls so they are able to apply that truth. Every one of us who believe is in a process of being continually transformed by God. Unfortunately, unbelievers receive no compassion from Christ. They once were not a people, okay? They, they have nothing. God has no responsibility to those who unbelieve who live in unbelief. But when a person puts their faith in Christ, they receive compassion and mercy from God. They receive grace from God. They become the people of God. Amazing. Peter uses the term mercy. Mercy and compassion are are really synonyms. God shows his sympathy, his mercy, and his compassion, his, his grace... To sinners, sinners who who were held captive in darkness, and he removes them from the kingdom of darkness and, and gives those very captives freedom in his kingdom of light. Mercy is deliverance from judgment that is deserved. And grace is the blessing God gives to those who are unworthy. God has rescued each believer, placed each believer into the church, and sovereignly caused each believer to be a chosen royal priesthood, a member of a holy nation, and the very possession of God. Let your mind work on that. Spend some quiet time and just think, I am royalty. Just let your mind meditate on, I am God's very possession. Each undeserving believer receives union with Christ, access to God, eternal security in Christ, and is filled because of that with an affection for Christ. This is a consistent thing you see in believers. Believers love Jesus. You know, I grew up in the charismatic world. And you could stand in a lot of charismatic churches and go, do you love Jesus? And everybody would stand up and dance and holler and scream. Maybe we could just get a little Baptist thing going here and go, do you love Jesus? And we could go, yeah. Everywhere I've gone in the world, 
You can identify believers because they love Jesus. Do you love Jesus? Yeah. There we go. All right. As his unique purchased people, every believer also has a divine purpose. And the highest priority of, those, of that purpose, and there's many different facets of that, the greatest purpose for every believer is to glorify God, to proclaim the gospel, and to serve the body of Christ. There isn't anything greater than glorifying God. But as you glorify God, you're going to serve the body. You're going to proclaim the gospel. And there's nothing in this life comparable to what Christ has done for every believer. There isn't anything you're going to do that's going to make you feel better or make you, you have greater value than what Christ has done for you. So how we proclaim the glories of God? How do we do that? How do we put our, our feet to that, so to speak? Here's four things. We glorify God by exercising faith. Psalms 50, verse 15. And call upon me in the day of trouble. I shall rescue you and you will honor me. By your faith. Trust God. Secondly, we glorify God through worship. Worship is the principal purpose of the human creation. That's what God created humans to do, to worship him. You do that, you're going to glorify him. You will be rewarded. Isaiah 43, 7 says, Everyone who is called by my name and whom I have created for my glory, whom I have formed, even whom I made. I have created for my glory. You were created to glorify God. Third, we glorify God by forgiving others. God has forgiven us. If you're a believer, you understand that very well. God has forgiven you. Therefore, <clears throat> believers are to be eager to forgive others. It has been said that we are never more godlike than when we forgive. I find this in Mark chapter 11, verse 25. And whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone... So that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your transgressions. And there's a lot of theology behind that. That's a, that's a couple weeks sermon, just that one verse. But the whole idea is this. God forgave you. Forgive, forgive, and forgive. It's difficult for us, but when we do that, we are the most like God and we glorify Him. And the fourth one this morning is we glorify God by applying that practice in all we do. Everything. Colossians 3, 17. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. Everything you do should glorify God. Think of your work. I am going to do my job today to the glory of Jesus. Think of your hobby. I'm going to do my hobby today to the glory of Jesus. Think of your day off. My day off today is going to be to the glory of Jesus. That needs to be our mindset. So the question that you need to ask yourself, that we all need to ask, how do we live? 
How is it that we actually then live moment by moment? And the other question that that produces is, what are the priorities of our life? How do we design our life based on priorities so that we actually do those things that glorify God? Where are you? Let's pray. Father, thank you that you have made us a people, that you have rescued us from darkness, that you have given us life, that you have, you have made us into a holy nation, that you possess us. We're, we're yours. Father, I ask that you would help us in our daily activities to honor you and to glorify you. Remind us continually, Holy Spirit, stir our hearts and our minds in such a way that we never forget what our position is in Christ. Help us to never forget the value that that speaks of. And let that idea of being a possession of God, a royal priesthood, a, a, a holy nation, let those identifiers be a source of unending overwhelming joy we are who we are because of Jesus the cornerstone in his name amen